Welcome to Pondering AI. My name is Kimberly Nebula, and I'm a strategic advisor at SAS. I'm so pleased to be hosting our third season in which we are joined by a diverse group of thinkers and doers to explore how we can create meaningful human experiences and make more mindful decisions in the age of AI. Today, we are joined by Fernando Lucchini. Fernando is the Global Data Science and Machine Learning Engineering Lead, did I get that right, (laughs) at Accenture, and he joins us to discuss the role of synthetic data. So welcome, Fernando. Lovely. Thank you. You use my long title. Chief Data Scientist works a lot better, but uh, let's make it nice and long and descriptive, right? I'm going to use Chief Data Scientist from now on. Nothing like a good host challenge. Uh, Anyway, so we're going to be addressing some common misconceptions and overlooked considerations for synthetic data. And with that in mind, it probably behooves us to start with a definition. So how do you define synthetic data? And are there some commonplace examples you could share? Yes. Um, and we can get very pedantic on this. So you'll reel me back and I'll reel you back and we'll kind of meet in the middle somewhere, somewhere where everybody would understand us, right? Sounds good. Um, the way I tend to define synthetic data as in AI-generated synthetic data, because of course we have the idea of what synthetic data is, which is data that has been created by a machine, right? That's one definition of what a synthetic data set is. But in the, in the, in the discussion today, I think we're going to focus on AI-generated. So this is... This is data that's been created by a machine, and it can be, and let's give a couple of examples will help. It can be data that is created randomly because it's for convenience. We need a little bit of random data to to do something with. So, hey, take examples of 50 people and give me random random heights for people. Take a random height from, you know, from one meter 60 to one meter 90, just give you some randomness. And the machine goes and creates you some random stuff. The more interesting stuff, which I think we'll have some fun with today, is where we have a data set. So we have, let's say, the example I always use is look, we have a room full of people and we have their heights, we have their skills, we have a bunch of things like this. But obviously, we can't walk out of the room and tell anybody about the fact that Fernando is Spanish and you know, one meter 80 and, or whatever, right? Um, so what we do is we ask the machine to look at that data um, to, create, to create the signal what is the signal that represents all of that? And out of that signal, we're asking it to recreate a new data set that will fit that signal, right? The pattern that is contained within the, the, the room full of people. It creates a set of data that is, has all of the same patterns, but none of the, none of the characteristics of that original data. Uh, and we're going to get into a second about you know, privacy and all these things that, that are quite complex. So in simple terms, it is machine, machine-generated data that is, that is created as a facsimile, not as a copy, but as a facsimile of the signals and patterns within the original data. So is it fair then, if I wanted to probably overly, greatly overly simplify the matter, that we are using synthetic data in cases where we might want to fill in a sparse data set, or we want to randomize a data set, or to ensure that we have, I suppose, filling in holes so that the data set that we're looking at accurately represents or is representative of the population that we want to evaluate. 
Is that about right? Good point. Let's think of a few examples to get everybody in the mood, I think, right? So, because yeah, I think you've got a few, a few different variants. Uh, you've got one set of use cases, which are, let's use the simplest uh, set of more obvious use cases, which is where I have a data set that I cannot use as is. It has a set of, let's say, privacy concerns or IP concerns. We haven't talked a lot in the industry about IP concerns with data, but maybe I have a data set that I want to share so people can actually do some modeling on, but I don't particularly want to share the the data itself uh, just yet because there's you know value in it and I want to sell it or whatever. But let's say that you have a, a set a data set that has either a strong IP that you don't particularly want to share, or it happens to have uh, you know, privacy concerns and you want to use it and overcome those privacy concerns. So use case number one, it helps us there, and we'll touch later on on the yeah. on the reality of of privacy. Um, Second use case is indeed whether you actually want to complement the data set. Now, let's be clear. Synthetic data is not a replacement for real data. So, so synthetic data or privately, private synthetic data is more like a distorted version of the data, right? Um, so, so modeling and inference on the data will come with risks. So yes, you can take the original data, add some synthetic data on it. But you know, I always joke with, with, with CEOs that what you're doing is you're stretching the rubber band of it. So if your data is a round rubber band, you're stretching one end of it, um, but it doesn't stop being the rubber band. So to some degree, you're stretching it a bit because it, uh, it, it gives you some, some convenience, right, in terms of modeling and stuff like that, but it comes with trade-offs. But for me, those are the, the, the two main, main, main veins of, of use cases, if it makes sense. And this is great because this then leads us into maybe two of the most common misconceptions about synthetic data. And the first prevalent theme is this idea of synthetic data as being inherently private or privacy preserving. So is synthetic data, in fact, the panacea for privacy concerns that it's sometimes purported to be? That's a lot of peace. So, so my, my view is that, is, is that it's, it can be, but it's not. But it's not quite as easy as that, right? Um, so, so firstly, as, as you say, synthetic data is not automatically private. It doesn't, that's not, it's just simply not true. Most of the off-the-shelf sort of models that we use, the generative models, are not privacy-preserving to begin with. That's not, that's not what they're doing. They can be certain, they can, it can leak information, so you can end up having models that have leaked some of this privacy. It, they're vulnerable to privacy attacks. Um, you know, not very good implementations where you're focusing on the privacy can end up with, with vulnerabilities of all sorts, right? Um, so at the end of the day, you can get great privacy if you're taking real care of how the whole model is being created from the pipeline to the implementation and where to apply privacy. You have to think about the architecture, the architectures, the hyperparameters, um, the variable ranges, all of these things you have to think about. And you have to think about it with privacy in, in mind so you don't end up effectively with some of this leakage where, where some of the stuff can be inferred or it can be subject to attack. So the answer is, no, it's it's not immediately. And this is where I think you and I probably can have great fun with this. The truth is there's an evolution to this where what are the controls, what are the processes, what are the tools, what are the methods that would allow anybody in the world that's not an expert to say, I've got a synthetic data set that I've got from Joe or Jane, and I know that it actually does have those privacy because, and whatever whatever those controls are. Uh, so we're not, we're not there at all. So the answer is no. Um, but does he have the potential to be to create the most amazing synthetic data that is private? Yes. So is there an example you can think of 
that demonstrates that point about someone perhaps assuming that by virtue of the data being synthetic, that it would, in fact, preserve privacy, but it really didn't. Thankfully, I don't have an example of somebody doing it. We have to stop them pretty quickly so they don't get into trouble, right? Uh, for me, it feels that it's a little bit of a, of a humanization of, of AI. So you sit there and you think, I mean, look how I've explained it. We take all this room full of people and all their data and uh, the superpower of, of this, some of these machine learning models is they can extract the signature of that. The, all the, and out of that signature, we ask the machine to take that signature and statistically recreate me the data based on that signal and you know, create me a copy of it. Um, and you think, well, you know, intuitively, I think, well, if it's, if it, if it's not really looking at the original data at all, never looking at the original data, only at this at this uh, probability distribution, right? And it's just you know sampling out out of that distribution. There's a problem, surely. Right. Surely there's no statistical probability that there's a leak. Oops. There can definitely be a leak. Um, I think it's that humanization. You know what I mean, Kimberly? Humanization is the problem. What this becomes quite difficult is when you have to then explain to these people that, hey, you know how I explained to you, like, uh, you know, in simple terms, how this works? It doesn't mean it's private. And you, there you start having to explain it at a much deeper level. And it becomes very complex to say, I know what I explained to you, but in the context of really large information, statistically, you can still have this problem if you're not effectively looking out for it. Right. It's a lot like the conversation we've had in the past about anonymized data does not mean that you will not be able to sort of work back, right? Healthcare is a great example of that, where if you're looking at a data set for a cohort of patients for a disease that's maybe not really prevalent, even by virtue of not having any personally identifiable information, it is in fact possible to go back and look at the area and the information and, and work your way back to identify those patients. And it sounds like you can actually do the same thing or replicate that same problem within your synthetic data set, essentially. Exactly, exactly. And we've been doing differential privacy for years in trying to figure out mm -hmm. how to do this. And, and I, do think, I do think it's a step forward, but it is sometimes difficult to explain it in a way that, you know, it sounds like it's... And by the way, we do have a lot of enthusiastic people like me and others, probably like you as well, that really love the topic. Yeah, It's fascinating that you can have these very complex and immense, amazing machines that can help us generate this data for, for everybody's convenience. And if you think about my situation, so I'm sitting on I'm sitting on a, in a team, a very 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 large team of data scientists. So so it's pretty normal to encounter situations where in, you know enhancing the data set with synthetic data is a useful thing. Mm -hmm. So we can apply techniques a bit better with all of the controls and all of these things notwithstanding. So so I'm enthusiastic because I see it as a utility in that respect. Um, but if I'm a bank or if I'm a retailer. Uh, or let's say in two or three years where, where we all have these marketplaces of data that we all dreamed about, that seems, doesn't seem to be have happened for the last 10 years or 20 years. But let's say we do, what role does synthetic play in that? And I think it's fabulous if done properly and if all of these controls, and there's, by the way, there's people around like uh, Michaela van der Schaal and all these you know, you know, gods and goddesses um, of AI that are sitting there thinking, what are the controls what are the methods? What are the things that we can standardize as an industry to say that some one of these things has been done sensibly, appropriately, and I can rely on it, right? It's incredibly interesting, incredibly interesting. So I want to come back to this, the idea of controls and, and how do we, in fact, try to validate that a synthetic data set, just like a quote-unquote real data set, will, in fact, provide the, the input 
right, that we're expecting for our model. But you touched on another issue. And so before I forget the question, why should people not just think about synthetic data as a replacement for real data? Mm. Depends on the use case, but in the use case of, of it's complementing data, because it's effectively just my rubber band example, it's just a stretch of the original data. So you're not really, mm-hmm. the signal, you know, the, the patterns are the patterns, you're not really, to some degree, it's, I say, it's a utility. You're helping yourself to a little bit more data because it helps you in the method you want to use for analysis for that one. In other use cases where you're just removing some of the, let's use the example of IP, something which is called rich IP, you might still want to know what Fernando has bought. The fact that you know that you, know, you no longer have Fernando and the things you have bought are equivalents in the synthetic data. So now you have the patterns, but you don't have the person. You still want to know so you can target Fernando because Fernando is one of your customers and you want to do that. So, so in the synthetic data set, you may, you may get the ability to do the analysis and get the, and get the patterns and the general answers that you want to exam questions, but you still don't have the particulars. And if the particulars are needed, you still have to go back to the original. You see where I'm going? Very rarely, let's use another example. Healthcare data is a really good one. Healthcare data, there's use cases where through COVID, if we had had the ability to create synthetic data, and, and some of this was done at the end of COVID, but not maybe at the beginning. Um, if we had the ability to say, let's take the population of the UK, create a synthetic copy, totally private. Let's just say, you know, for the sake of the thought experiment, 100% private, total differential privacy. Um could we have sent that to the people we trust in another another global economies and doctors and PhDs so we could have had a much bigger data set where I don't care about Fernando specifically, but mm-hmm. I care about the, 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 the trends within and what happens to certain, the, you know, uh, and let's face it, in medicine, everything matters, gender, age, you know, right. uh, uh, lifestyle, whatever the case may be, right? So would we have been better off? And I think the answer would have been yes, without ever knowing, having to know Fernando and Fernando's personal circumstance. Different from a bank trying to say, okay, what can I give Kimberly or Fernando as a as a great offer that's going to you know, help them with the way they're spending their money? And of course, getting the synthetic data and being able to create products that will that will can be used on real data. This is an interesting one. So I've created mm-hmm. all all my analysis and all my algorithms that should work. You still need to turn them on in the real data. Otherwise, you know, what's the objective here, right? Yeah, and that's a, that's an interesting problem and maybe again something we can talk a little bit about where if for instance and a deep fake right synthesized data maybe it's a, a face so perhaps we're trying to synthesize a data set of human faces that have enough of every possible combination of complexion or hair color or size and you know all of those all of those bits yeah. right the right breakdowns of gender so that we're not overrepresented or underrepresented uh, for that model to learn on yeah. right which has been an issue with facial recognition so then i start to wonder if i synthesize this you know perfectly statistically appropriate data set so that every you know demographic is represented fully enough for us to actually apply machine learning to it does the model then learn these synthetic features, which, as you said, are going to be close, but not quite to, you know, real people's faces? And, and does it then, if we try to apply that in, in the real world for facial recognition, not that we would want to do this, but is it, in fact, still not going to perform well because it has learned synthetic features that, as you said, are the stretched rubber band and not, you know, it's, it's sort of a slightly blurry picture uh, as opposed to real features? Uh, well, you, you touch on a very important piece that we haven't touched yet, which is you take your data set, whatever it may be, 
And as you say, you do you you get your variational end to encoder or whatever it is you're doing, and you you identify the the you know, probability function and all that stuff, density functions. You, you you create your machinery to create your synthetic data, and you have it. It has all the patterns, all the problems, all the biases, all the issues. It has everything you can think of. So one of the things that that academics and, and others postulate is that it can be used for fairness, as, which is where you're heading with this, right? Mm. You can say, okay, well, if, if this is, if we can look at the original data and or the synthetic data, and it's very clear that it's, you know, let's make it up, 90% of the people in this data set are, are, are males, for example, and it's a data set for, for upselling or cross-selling or whatever, then could we take this and say, well, actually, could we take the, the the patterns as they relate to the females and amplify that synthetically to to reach parity? My view on this is that obviously this is very complex. Fairness is mm-hmm. such a complex issue sociologically, not only from a science perspective. I think if we think of privacy as being about being a difficult thing that we're trying to deal with, even with this in the context of this, fairness is even less mature. And I do think it requires immense amount of research and not research just from from scientists, data scientists or, or mathematicians, from sociologists and others that can say, you know, what is the reality of not mechanically, but you know, from the context of business and society, that we're taking a data set about people that we know has problems. That we then using using synthetic to remove the problems, and, I, and Kimberly, I think you mentioned one case, but we can we can open it up to both, right? One is we've created an entire synthetic data set, and within that synthetic data set, we're going to solve the problems. Mm-hmm. But another one is I've got the original data, and using synthetic data, I'm going to solve the problem in the in the actual real data, right? I think we should challenge ourselves to put a lot of investment in, into figuring out how to do this sensibly so we have a better world and a better society. But there's going to be much better people than me, you know, we have sociologists and uh, ethics experts that are going to have to tell us how you do this in the, in the most sensible, rational way. Because I think the mechanics of the science will be easy to do. Mm-hmm. We'll get that. That'll be, that'll be fairly simple. But Because we already do it now, by the way, you can actually just look at the results and say, well, and I've given you a really lame example. I always use the example of insurance products for um, for vintage uh, vehicles, where you know everybody looks like me with a you know bald with a beard in their you know <laughs> late forties. And the truth is, my wife likes them as much as anybody. But the data for the last twenty years or thirty years is massively biased towards mm-hmm. a particular type of buyer, right? Whereas today it's all changing. So we could easily just ignore that and change that and say, okay, well don't care and, uh, and amplify the parts of the data that we need to. You see where I'm going with that, Kimberly? It's a very really tough one. It's, it's, I think you and I would want the world to be perfect and actually as fair as it can be because we're, you know, we're fair people and live hopefully in fair societies. But from that to being engineers that are saying, I'm going to, you know, from a synthetic perspective, do this. Okay, where to start? Well, you know, back in my consulting days and I was working on you know, data governance and analytics governance, and somebody asked me, hey, we're moving to the cloud. So how does that change our data governance issues and, and problems and concerns? And I said, well, it really doesn't. Uh, I mean, the data is the data. You moved it from one place to the other. It doesn't do anything for the rest of it. You might have new tools to help you secure it in certain ways. Quite. But the idea about policies and what's appropriate usage, moving the data hasn't hasn't changed those questions and, and those concerns. And in the same way, when we're thinking about fairness or equity or really just making sure that the data reflects the world, the real world, that we 
in fact want to operate in, it sounds like whether it's quote unquote real data or data that we, we synthesized, those issues and considerations still need to be really thoughtfully and mindfully considered. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, I really don't mind touching the topic because I think we all have a part and we all want to be fair, right? So I don't mind touching the topic, but it's the it's the consequences of, of measurement, of action, of, uh, you yeah, know, it's those things that I worry about. But privacy is the same, by the way. With privacy, we want to be able to say this has inherent privacy because if we've done X, Y, and Z and we've measured it in this way and we've got these standards that we've met, but privacy is binary, right? You either want to be private or you don't want to be private. Right. Fairness is not binary. Fairness is in the eye of the beholder, in general terms, right? The ultimate fairness is in the eye of the beholder. So, so dealing with that becomes very interesting. And let's not forget that these models that we're using to generate some of this data are really complex. I mean, some of these are, some of them can be very opaque. We haven't talked about it, but they can be massively opaque. Mm-hmm. You got these, you got these, 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 these amazing, you know, generative models that create these enormous, high-dimension, you know, and by dimension we mean the pieces of it, right? The different different aspects of it. You know, immensely high dimensional synthetic data, which is magnificent from a science perspective, but they're also pretty much like a black box. So, you know, you can't explain it to a normal human being without massive mathematics. And even then, there's areas of it you can't explain at all. It's a it's an action reaction to the design that you've created, right? So so then that adds another layer of interesting things around this, right? So Understanding that a lot of the common techniques that are being used to create synthetic data, as you've said, bring their own issues like opacity and and not necessarily being able to exactly understand how and where and when, uh, you know, different aspects of the data are are being generated or why. Say you've gone out and you've you've generated a, you know, a whack of data, technical term. What kinds of controls or validation criteria do you need to apply to this? I know this is actually an area of substantive research right now. What are we seeing and what are we learning about how to validate these types of data sets? At this point, I think it's too early. It's way too early. So this, this, is, I said, this is where we call people like Michaela van der Schaal and other, other goddesses and gods of the, of the academic world. Because this is where academia is needed. They need to sit there and they need to think, you know, hard and long and test and validate. Because you're going to, what are you going to validate? You, have, you don't validate the techniques. Techniques are techniques, right? You validate how they're applied, how they're applied towards privacy. And again, these are things that we talk about, you know, generative models, like they're a simple thing or variational encoders. But underneath these are, you know, mathematically super complex things that you can manipulate in endless ways. So to some degree, the problem becomes... Within all this complexity, how do you create the minimum amount of controls that are the most sensible that will prove to somebody that the methodology used, not only for the creation, but also the testing? Let's not forget mm-hmm. it. It's, maybe we simplify it like that, Kimberly, in such a complex area. You're going to have to create a set of controls that say, I have created these using these controls, and the model, depending on the model, the controls will be different. But it tells you that I know how to use this model in a way that is sensible, and it's focused towards privacy, for example. Then you're also going to have to prove that you've created the testing that actually goes back and says, I've tested this. So I've not only created it in a way that I think is differentially private or has the right privacy privacy controls, but I'm also looping back into it and testing it, or I have tested it and I can certify I have tested it. So it's not full of uh, of leaks or even arbitrary uh, you know things you know we talked a little bit at the beginning but you can have these leaks but you can also have these if the data is really big you can have these simple statistical coincidences 
So how do you prove both sides? The controls of how you've created the, the thing so it's sensible and the testing that you can prove that you can literally say, I build a thing and then when I test it back, I can tell you it has, and it'll never be black and white. It'll be a, it'll be because you're never going to be able to test a, I don't know, if we make a, a data set which has a billion columns or something, you're not going to sit there checking every single one. Oh, maybe we do, maybe you do. So there is, I don't know where, quite where we're going to land on that and it's going to need you know, clever people than me to figure it out. Uh, unless you figure it out, Kimberly, and you're going to tell me now that it's all sorted out and I'm way behind the times. <laughs> I, th I think I'm talking to you because I have no idea whatsoever. <laughs> and, you know, again, this is, it's, it's an old problem made new again. You know, we used to talk about data quality and with very simplistic data, right? Do you have all the right sort of numbers for accounting or, or whatnot? And even there, if we look at how folks are managing to understand the completeness, the comprehensiveness, the accuracy and quality of their very basic data sets that, that we, we know, right? Operational business data, finance, accounting, basic personal information, we don't do a very good job. So it strikes me that this idea of, of doing that to quality for this kind of data is a whole, it's just a whole new problem. Yeah. And that's the problem. At the moment today, it's down to who you are talking to and whether you can be convinced that they have the right arguments, that they're doing this in that controlled way. There are startups that do, we haven't talked about this, but there's startups that will tell you that they do they create private data. So so, so there's elements of, of these folks proving to you that they've done things in a way that you know, convince you that it's correct. So there's some of that and, and that will evolve. But today, I think for the average for the average company that wants to use some synthetic data, they have to they have to really, really be educated so they can be convinced that the method used and the method of test is appropriate. And there is your trouble. You see what I mean, Kimberly? Mm -hmm. this, is, this is where it becomes troublesome. This is where suddenly we've gone to synthetic data is wonderful and we should be creating it AI-driven synthetic data. And then the reality is that it's quite hard to do, um, you know, quite hard to prove that you've done it right, quite hard to test that you've done it right, and quite hard to explain to somebody that the very complex methods you've done to do it right are whatever they are, and you're going and the listener is going to understand that the person from risk in a bank or whoever it may be. Um, so I think we're going to have to work very hard on trust. We're going to have to work very hard on formalized me measurement that we can all count on that we don't need to understand. I just know that there's a methodology created by blah, 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 which is part of the IEEE, I make it up, wherever it may be, that as long as those controls are followed and they can be proven, then I don't need to understand how variational and tone order works, never mind how that implementation works or how the test harness works, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think those things are still to come. Yeah, which is somewhat problematic because to some extent, I think the market, the appetite for synthetic data is growing. I've heard that you know, spoken about even in the context of small or medium-sized businesses or just businesses that aren't digitally native, right, don't, aren't able to generate the data sets and don't have the historical data sets that a digital native company would and, and therefore not necessarily able to compete. Now, certainly there's other ways for them to potentially use, you know, yeah. to buy models and, and things like that that have been pre-trained with all of the issues and caveats that come with that. But Absolutely. it sounds like we're, we're still... The card's still a little bit before the horse for you to be able to just go out and buy a synthetic data set and, you know, cross your fingers and hope for the best that it's actually representing what you've been told. Oh, absolutely. And if you think about if you if you think about how the average company is, is in now, so everybody's very, very focused on getting their data to the cloud for all the right reasons too, because they want the mm -hmm. agility and all these things. So we've spent a lot of time and we continue to spend time 
doing that. And maybe we do more of that than we do data science or clever things like that because we need to get the data there. We're generalizing, but let's just say that that's a general trend. At some point in the next year or two, that'll end. The data will be there, more or less, and you're ready to have some fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, at which point you'll realize that you, if you have client data through the years of, uh, of, uh, of COVID, it's, just, it's totally screwed up. All the patterns change. Whatever the normality was before has died. It's, it's been totally wrangled up in COVID. So, and COVID is now kind of going away. So what do you do? You now have a blip in, a two-year blip in the data where you can't really use it for machine learning because, mm-hmm. frankly, it's going to tell you something that's not helpful. Um, so, so you sit there and you think, okay, right, so there's no point cutting out two years of our life because then there's no point going three or four years back to learn what I need today. Because uh, sadly, our society moves too quickly for us to do. And we're cutting out examples of long-term running turbines and machine data of that kind that may not no have been impacted. So, but, mm-hmm. but a lot of the world's data was impacted. So then we sit there and we think, hmm, I'm going to have to either look for techniques that don't use that data, even though I spent so much time and money putting it in the cloud, but that's fine. I still need it there for, to run the operation or because I need to know Kimberly's balance in her bank for the last five years or whatever. But for machine learning and for, for insights, okay, that's a problem. So I either start doing things like reinforcement learning. I start using mechanisms that don't necessarily need the data, mm-hmm. right? Um, that maybe I start learning right now. And, and by the way, three years ago, we talked about reinforcement learning in a company and we might look, okay, well, maybe that's the domain of the Googles of this world. Right. The truth is these days, it's in the domain of most people if they, if they kind of know what they're doing. It's either that or that plus a synthetic data to say, well, maybe there's elements of data that I can synthetically use. Maybe I can get data from other parties. Maybe I can, maybe there's a maybe when we can use synthetic data that maybe becomes more possible. And I I think this, to your point on synthetic being used more, I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing now people looking back and going, there's been a a real change in scenery of of hearing people wanting to use reinforcement, for example, real change before Mm -hmm. COVID, after COVID. And I know time has passed, but even then there's a reality which is based on that data having problems. Secondly to this is there's been a real change in people talking about synthetic, but not so much people implementing. Kimberly, I don't see that that many because the reality is that if you want to do synthetic data, if you're a big firm, you'll probably look, you have some data scientists that might be telling you the reality, which is well, this is quite hard. So let's not for the faint hearted. So maybe we're careful. Um, maybe you go to a software company that's you know, advertising out there and you think, well, I'll use one of these. And some of them don't use quite modern AI synthetic data, they're using mm. maybe less modern and more traditional stuff, which may still serve your purpose. But I think we're in that moment of we need another year or two for these things to mature a bit so the average company can use it without feeling massively exposed and with the market having you know, tooling and, and, and a lot more research that validates that what they're doing is sensible. It kind of feels like that's where we are. I don't know. Did you observe the same? Is that, is that something you see as well? Yeah, I, I think so. I I've been really struck by, I suppose folks might say we're early in the, what's the Gardner terminology, hype cycle for for synthetic data. And, uh, and I get yeah. concerned when I, I hear some of these things being put out there without the sort of uh, associated buyer beware label attached to it. But it feels like there's a lot of potential if done correctly, but patience in this interim period may may just be required. Yeah, and be ready to get a lot of hate on this because I get it all the time. We'll get people that will tell us, we do it all the time. You, know, you yeah. guys are not sensible. It's been done all the time. 
there's always dangers with generalizations. There are great people doing synthetic data in small amounts for specific use cases, and it's all fine. I think what you and I are trying to discuss, certainly I am, more the generalization of large mm -hmm. companies using this as a norm. We're very far from that. Okay. Very far, I think. And when I say very far, I mean three years, two, three years. So it's amazing how, how short those very, very far time frames are, these time horizons are these days. Oh, well, Kimberly, think about it. Six months ago, we didn't have DALI. Now we have DALI. So suddenly we've gone from a world where there's nobody could even think about writing a text that says, draw me a picture of a banana smoking a cigar on the beach. And now you can just go to OpenAI, write that sentence, and you get that picture. And <laughs> the, the three years is a, is a monstrous amount of time in the AI world these days. Yeah. And, and another great example of then the the more philosophical conversation that comes <laughs> as a result of these technologies, right? Which, what is art? <laughs> what is, what these is are valuable? synthetic data, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I keep on talking to customers about GPT-3 as being, which, sorry for the audience, GPT-3 is a, an amazing long, big language model from OpenAI, right? Um, and I keep on talking to clients about GPT-3 is a synthetic data generator. Right. It's as simple as that. Uh, if you ask it, the other day I did a, a presentation where I, I used GPT-3 to, to, to explain why context was such a difficult thing for machines. Mm -hmm. So why is context such a difficult thing for machines? And GPT-3 explained exactly why it's difficult. Um, and I think that's in entirely synthetically generated. Yet we all accept it because it's sensible. Because it's one of the things we can control. We can read what this thing produces and we can say, okay, that's entirely sensible. It's exactly what I would have said. I accept that synthetic generation. It's a slightly different thing from what you and I are talking, which is, you know, large swathes of data that might contain quite... And by the way, why wouldn't you use GPT-3 to generate synthetic data within that data that you and I have just described? And, and it still has the issues that it's still generated from something, so it still has a learning. Is that learning... Got, it's an endless loop of, uh, of interesting use cases, right? Right. But again, that's a, that's another great example where you can start to try to validate the outputs and you can see a whole, you know, span of things that look perfectly reasonable. But because the scope of what can be generated is so broad and then, you know, you don't see those those other cases, which which may be just as plentiful uh, that where it's just really nonsense. And so where this starts to get a little concerning is when we are generating, you know, if we're using this to write uh, opinion pieces or, you know, Politico or in general, where it doesn't, it's not necessarily that obvious that it it, it might be not fact-based or not factual or or someone's uh, sort of a human opinion, if you will. So there, there's a lot of, you know, philosophical questions and certainly issues with GBT3, again, because even though it's synthetic, issues of gender bias, for instance, which comes from the language in the corpus that it was initially trained on, even though it's now generating new data. So back all the way back to that initial conversation that says just well, because it's synthetic that, right? doesn't mean it, it yeah, it, it's not born from sort of whole cloth. Uh, so it, it, it comes with yeah. its own. And, and, mm -hmm. and GPT-3 and other last language models, by the way, we should take our hats off. This is a magnificent yes. thing. I mean, DALI and GPT-3 are magnificent. And and we should understand that the people at OpenAI and other people are, are, are people that are thinking of society and have no desire for this to be used in the wrong way. These are very moral people. Uh, at the same time, we need to recognize the magnificence of what they've done and that it will evolve, Right. At the same time that we say, well, if we're asking it to explain something as lame as what I've, you know, give me an explanation of how, why, why context is such a difficult thing for machines to understand, it gives you a, a, a magnificent answer. But we could ask it lots of strange things where 
where where heavens knows what we could come up with. So thus is the trouble with synthetic data. And we've given, we started the, the talk with synthetic data. And, and I think what, what you and I could have done is say that we were talking about big, big size data that we're creating mm -hmm. synthetic copies on, almost big databases, big tables, big blah, blah, blahs, right? And we, we're here now talking about synthetic data created by a large language model. And the truth is it suffers from exactly the same, all of this suffers from the same concerns, right? as simple as that, right? That's a good point. Now, we, we've been <laughs> sim simply unsimple. So we've been talking a lot about the need to set aside this sort of idea of synthetic data as, as a panacea for privacy. And we've been talking about all the applicable warnings about the, the sort of state of affairs for, as we've said, broad scale operational generation and, and uh, application of the, this data. But that being said, there are really interesting and important use cases and applications for synthetic data today, right? Far beyond these, these issues of, you know, if we ignore privacy and we think of all these things like uh, around gene analysis and, and computational creativity. Why don't we end on, on that note? Can you share some areas where this technology and the use of synth synthetic data is in fact really helping us solve some tricky problems or, or think differently in ways that we would not have been able to, uh, or at least think think uh, we can we can allow ourselves to dream a bit, right? And, and you've yeah. named a couple that I really like. So in in healthcare and life sciences, where where all of us get the value from sharing the data, we should all open the door and say, you know, government, governments should be creating synthetic data to help all of us evolve. This should be it should be a global movement. I don't know if you agree, but it's one of those where I don't want to share my private data about my healthcare, but that's very different from a synthetic data that I'm not in there. I mean, not really. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't that be shared to, to solve the problems of, you know, massive issues? And we all have in our lives, our personal use cases of family, friends around us that we can probably shed a little tear when we think you know, maybe if, if, if we knew more and we invested more in this and would it help cancer? Would it help COVID? Would it help all these other things that affect us, right? So I think that's an entire sway of things. And say in, in gene analysis and stuff, this generation of synthetic has happened for years because they're just generating variations, mm -hmm. which leads us to the very fun. Um, you talked a little bit about it, but but when we're using things like computational creativity, right? And DALI is a great example. So imagine a, a world where where you're in a marketing organization and you're constantly using clip art and it's it's limited <laughs> and you know and there's a speed thing and there's all these things where you can literally just Ask for what you want. Be as creative as you want. Ask for whatever thing you 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 enjoy and you like using using text, and you can get that instantly because the machine just you know creates you with with that computational creativity creates you that thing. Uh, another another variation of this which I quite enjoy is uh, it's all of those companies where you're creating a product which is which requires variation in order for it to be consumed, right? Mm. Um, gosh, the endless examples, right? Toys are a great example. Variations of colors of toys. Uh, we've all had, I don't know if it, in Spain, when I was growing up, we had several fads of these, you know, yo-yos. We had yo-yos <laughs> and everybody had to have the one which was particular color. And oh my God, there's no many there. The truth is, it's the one they had the less pigment. So they didn't do enough of them. And suddenly we all want it. Um, but this possibility that machines can actually look at, for example, in flavors or in things like that, they can analyze through the patterns, what are the combinations of aspects of these products that make it more attractive to us and, and let the machine create 
brand new interesting combinations to this. And I always joke that it's a little bit like the Harry Potter multiple multiple flavor gum. <laughs> uh, do you remember those from the movies? They yes. have these little 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 gums, and they have different flavors. But some of them are absolutely horrific, are, are like bogey flavor and things like that, right? And I always joke, it's a little bit like that, but actually, you know, without the without the ugly flavors, it's actually creating very interesting flavors that you will like, right? And mixing the ingredients together in ways that a human wouldn't necessarily do because it's not in the palate uh, or limited palate. Or, so there are there are elements like that that I think the machine can do. Um, another example I really like is um, in design. There are elements here where we can teach a machine the say the physics of a chair. What does comfort mean? And we can let the machine really help us, you know, with how to design a chair in a way that actually is is beyond the ergonomics that we already know. For example, not putting down the fact that people work incredibly hard in the in the physical sciences to understand our body and our chairs, but I'm giving it as a as a bit of an example. And I think there's an entire element where synthetic data can can be. And there's plenty of artists, by the way, now creating. I don't know if you know, but you can go online mm-hmm. and buy synthetic art that people are creating. Artists are creating synthetically. So I think there's an entire area of that create, creative, uh, creative use of uh, of synthetic data that I think could be interesting and magnificent. And and Dali, everybody go and look at Dali; it's, it's fabulous. They've got a lovely Instagram that you can have a look at all the fun variations. It's just the beginning of of mainstreaming computational creativity through synthetic data. I'm I'm intrigued and still because I'm always a what another guest said, she's a, a skeptical optimist, uh, intrigued and still slightly skeptical. <laughs> so this, this will be great. I know, I know what you mean. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Fernando. I really appreciate you coming on today and helping us just set some appropriate expectations for synthetic data today and providing some fun glimpses into the, the possible future. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Always lovely to, to talk to you. And, and we should do this again often. Yes, we should. I'm going to take you up on that. <laughs> Speaking of buyer beware, huh? I'll be back. Now, in the meantime, next up, Patrick Hall of BNH.ai is going to join us to discuss the legal ramifications of AI and how we keep the scientific method present in data science. You're not going to want to miss it, so subscribe now.